You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras Athletics Edition. MLB.com's Mark Feinsand caught up with A's general manager David Forst to discuss what he learned as a player, the trade of Josh Donaldson, and turning the club around after two difficult seasons, and of course Moneyball as well. Here's Mark. So David, you were a four-year starter, shortstop, team captain at Harvard. Uh, was baseball always your number one passion? Yeah, it was. Um, I was, you know, when I started looking at colleges, I was always going to go somewhere where I could play. Um, I grew up on the West Coast. I thought about, you know, Stanford being a great school, but they weren't interested in me for baseball, so kind of changed my uh, my choices. And, and Harvard luckily recruited me and brought me out, and uh, it turned out to be great. Um, just to correct you, I, I did not start as a freshman. I got hurt freshman year. Missed oh. missed my whole freshman year. I. I you know, depending on who you ask, I might have played shortstop as a freshman, um, but I did play shortstop the next three years, and uh, and it was a fantastic experience. Well, it's good. Don't want to be fake news. I'm glad you corrected <laughs> that. Uh, you're one of a number of Harvard graduates who are now in top front office positions around baseball. Guys like Mike Hill, Jeff Breidich, Peter Woodfork. Do you think it's a coincidence? I don't know. Um, you know, it's it's an impressive group, and all those guys. I didn't play with Mike. Uh, he was he was older than I was, but I played with Jeff and Peter, and you know, a couple other guys who came through. Um, I think the timing was right, and you know, ultimately, I think Theo kind of changed the perception for everybody and and the opportunities. I mean, he um, you know he was already assistant GM with the Padres when I started working here. Paul DePodesta obviously hired me. Um, but Theo's profile got so high when he got the Red Sox job that I think it really opened the door for a lot of Ivy League guys who, you know, some who played, some who didn't. Um, and I think that ultimately changed sort of the, the, the dynamic in, in front offices. You mentioned Paul. He's been the chief strategy officer for the Cleveland Browns now for the past mm-hmm. 14 or 15 months. Do you think this could become a trend in the future where executives from one sport move to another one, or do you think he's... I, yeah, I don't know. I think Paul may be unique. He, you know, he played football in high school and college. He actually worked a little bit in the CFL before he got into baseball. So he, he always was passionate about football. Even when I worked with him you know, 15 years ago, uh, he was going out to Raiders training camp just to kind of be around. And you know, he loved football. So it, it wasn't a huge surprise to me uh, that he made that sort of crossover. I, I don't know that it's going to happen with too many other people. I don't I don't know how many of us actually know anything about other sports, so <laughs> it might be hard to do. Uh, you continued playing after you left Harvard and independently from Frontier League. Uh, after you graduated, you went to Red Sox camp in 1999 as a non-roster invite. When did you decide at what point that playing wasn't your future and was that sort of a hard realization? Um, you know, it, in retrospect, I don't know that it was as hard for me as it is for a lot of guys. Um, it was probably the middle of that second season in Springfield. I was in the Frontier League 98. Then I went to camp with the Red Sox, got released, went back to the Frontier League. And I, I could tell that middle of that second year that, that my skills were not getting better, that you know, I wasn't getting the balls I used to get to. And I, you know, when at a time, you know, 22, 23 years old, when guys were supposed to be ramping up, I, I was not getting better. So I think it was pretty clear to me. I, I had gotten what I wanted out of the pro ball experience. I just, I wasn't ready when I finished college to be done playing. Um, but those two years kind of got it out of my system. I had a great time, met some great people. And it was clear to me in the middle of that summer, 99, it was time to move on. Playing in spring training with the Red Sox, even though you never played in the big leagues. Did that experience help you when you started in the front office job in terms of just 
having an idea of what players go through and that kind of a thing? A hundred percent. It helped me in a number of ways. First of all, I realized when I was there as a 22-year-old, I was old. There were 18 and 19-year-olds vying for spots on, at the time it was their low-A club, the Augusta team. I, I was surprised that I was considered an old player at that point, and, and it really sort of opened my eyes to the youth in the game and, and how players develop. Um, also, just going through that experience of being released, going into the farm director's office and having him say to you, like, this is the end of the road, I think that has stuck with me, and it's hopefully made me more compassionate in the conversations that we have with players and understanding what it's like to sit on the other side and hear that. How did you ultimately land your first non-playing job? Um, you know, I sent out resumes. When I got back, uh, I was living in Boston. I got back there after that summer in 99 and just sort of sent out resumes to everybody um, and got a couple you know, a couple bites here and there. Josh Burns was in Cleveland at the time. He wanted to interview me for an internship. The Mets uh, offered me something down in Port St. Lucie, but I kind of wanted a, a big league job. And at the time, Paul DePodesta was here um, as the assistant GM. He and I knew some people in common from Harvard. We didn't know each other, um, but it was enough to get me an interview. And I flew out to Oakland to interview with Paul and Billy in probably October, November of 99. So you've been with the A's since 2000? Yep. Uh, You've turned down opportunities to interview for GM openings in several other places, San Diego and Seattle among them. Was that difficult to, to turn those job offers, those interview offers down, given there's only 30 of these jobs? Um, yeah, some were more difficult than others, and some I spent more time considering than others over the years. But, um, you know, it came back always to a couple things. First of all, I love working with Billy. You know, he gave me the opportunity from the first day I spent in this office. He included me in everything, taught me everything, and, and um, it's not not a stretch to say he's, you know, probably my closest friend in the world at this point, not just someone I work with. Um, my family loves the Bay Area. You know, my, my wife works, she went to law school in the Bay Area, she works in San Francisco, we love where we live, um, and it was always going to have to be an you know, something extraordinary to get us to leave the Bay Area. And luckily for me, it, it kind of worked out a couple years ago that we were able to do this shift where Billy moved up. I took over the GM role, and um, I couldn't be happier to have stayed with the A's. More teams seem to be moving towards that kind of structure uh, that you guys have, multi-executive decision-making team, the Rays, Cubs, Dodgers, Twins come to mind mm -hmm. teams right now. Why do you think this shift is taking place? You know, I think the job is just so huge. Um, and, and what the public sees, obviously, is what's out on the field in the big leagues. Um, but the reality is that you're overseeing hundreds of people as well, and you're managing you know, an entire staff, whether it's scouts or player development or your front office. I mean, you don't just you know, put together a team. You don't just make trades or sign free agents. You actually have to manage an entire company. And it makes sense to have more than, you know, more than one person or more than two people even doing all of that at the same time. And it's worked out really well here. I think Billy and I both sort of have our areas that we cover. We, we each have relationships with other clubs so that when it comes to, um, you know, making calls or talking to agents, we have relationships. It's, it's really worked out nicely here the last couple of years. It seems to be becoming very, as rare to see an executive stay with the same franchise for an extended period of time as it is to see a player wear the same uniform for his whole career. Yeah. Uh, you're entering your 18th year with Oakland. Is there a sense of pride in being able to stay in one place and, and working to building something in the same place? Yeah, there absolutely is. And, and again, going back to the, you know, the question about opportunities other places, I, 
I always like the idea of seeing things through here and, and making it work. Obviously, when I first got here, we had the you know the stretch of four playoff years in a row. We didn't get out of the division series. 2006, we did. Um, then we had another stretch, you know, 12 through 14, where we you know put together some great teams and and you know we didn't get past the wild card game in 14. So there, there's always a sense of wanting to kind of you know finish things here. Um, but more importantly, you know, the people here are great. There's so many employees in this organization that have been here way longer than I have. Our, our farm director was drafted in 1972 as a player and has never left. So there are great people here. Um, and I look, I certainly understand there are a lot of people out there who have to go other places to move up and to find that job. But it's, uh, I've really been lucky that I've been able to stay here as long as I have. You mentioned those teams from your first few years here. Uh, you had a really young, thriving team, guys like Jason Giambi, Miguel Tejada, the big three pitchers. How hard was it to see those guys one by one leave and just not have the chance to keep that core together to see what, what they could accomplish given how, how yeah. close you got? Right. You know, it's, yeah, and it's amazing how sort of relevant that conversation still is because we're, you know, anytime we talk about a stadium, and, and obviously it's what we're hoping for in Oakland, the, you know, the carrot at the end of that is being able to hold on to your guys. I mean, I think we've had good young teams, and then ultimately we've had to see these guys kind of walk out the door for more money elsewhere. And, and what we really want is to be able to hold on to our own guys. So you, you mentioned Jason and, and Miggy and Eric Chavez and all these guys who, who were great in Oakland and then went on to other places. Um, you know, the model that works best and, and we're hoping works with a new ballpark is the one where you get to keep these guys and, and make sort of lifelong lifelong A's. If my memory serves me correctly, Chavez was the one guy you extended. Right, we did. Right? How hard of a decision is that to decide, okay, we can extend one guy? <laughs> and Eric, yeah. Who's, who's that guy going to be? Right, it, and it, it makes that decision sort of so precious, and you're so worried about if you only can pick one, making sure. And, and look, Eric was absolutely the right guy. He had some injury issues that, um, you know, that prevented him from kind of continuing to develop. Um, but yeah, it, it does make it hard when your resources are limited. You know you have to just sort of pick and choose. Had we held on to all those guys and to Hudson and Mulder and Zito, you know, we always say, who knows? Um, but it does it does make it difficult when you're sort of putting that much emphasis on every decision. I'm sure the fact that Chavez signed for half of what Giambi ended up getting probably <laughs> helped make that decision right. as well. It, do, it did not <laughs> hurt Eric's chances of, of staying. Uh, it, it seems like what you're saying, uh, it seems like the biggest advantage that some of the big market teams have, people always think about, oh, they can go get the big free agents, but it's not as much the free agents as it is retaining your own talent. You look at the, the Yankees dynasty, it was about being able to keep Jeter and Posada and Rivera and all those guys, right? A hundred percent, yes. And and look, you have to do the work on the front and you have to do the scouting and the developing and make sure you get good young players to the big leagues. But yeah, it's it's about keeping them once you get there. And the Yankees are, are sort of the, the prime example of, you know, you build a 15-year run by having young players and then keeping them through their prime and, and putting guys around them. But yeah, it's such an important part of, of every team's business plan. I've talked to a lot of the GMs about trades they've made that have worked out well, that have worked out poorly. I've talked to Jed today about uh, the, trading Corey Kluber to, to Cleveland when he was with San Diego, mm -hmm. and of course how that almost came back to bite him years later with the World Series. Is it is it tough to see a guy like Josh Donaldson thrive in Toronto the way he has after trading him? Well, look, we knew Josh was a good player when we traded him. We didn't have any illusions that he was going to go out and you know put up a clunker of a year after that 
I didn't know he was going to win the MVP, but um, no, I mean, I, again, that's part of our situation here. We knew that it, we, we were not far away from him taking up a big chunk of our payroll, and it just it wasn't sustainable. You know, after, after that first year, he was going to start making 11, 12, you know, up to 17 million, which I think he's making next year. And we knew we were going to have to do something too soon rather than too late with Josh. And um, look, we, you know, we can look at on the field right now, and, and Kendall Graveman, who's likely our opening day starter, Franklin Barretta, who's our number one prospect, both came from that trade. So um, you know, history is still waiting to be written on, on the results of that deal. Um, but it's, you know, it's just sort of life in Oakland. You have to make those decisions on the Josh Donaldsons of the world. Is that part of the job that you just have to resign yourself to? That it's just life in Oakland? I've talked to you know, some other guys in small markets who said, uh, you know, it just is what it is. You yeah. know that when guys are approaching arbitration or approaching free agency, you're probably going to have to trade them. Is that just something you have to reconcile in your own brain that even if it doesn't make sense at the moment as a baseball move, it just is part of the job? Absolutely. And, you know, we talk to players all the time about only worrying about things you can control. Like, I cannot control our revenue stream, our ballpark situation, our ultimately our payroll. Like we, you know, ownership has done a really good job as long as I've been here saying here's here's your bucket, use it, do what you want with it. They've given us autonomy to do that. You know, but it is what it is and that's, you know, Billy and I sort of take that challenge and um, you know, we've we've been lucky enough to build some pretty good teams out of it. If you're enjoying this Mark Feinstein interview, make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the MLB.com Newsmakers podcast. You'll hear Mark and other MLB.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past, as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers. You can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinsand. You knew we weren't going to get through this without the M word coming up at least once. <laughs> at least once. I'll, at give least you, once. I'll give you one. Okay. Uh, we all saw the Hollywood version uh-huh. of what 2002 was like, the winning streak in yep. Moneyball. What was it like actually being here for that and going through that? You know, it's hard to sort of separate the two right now. I've, <laughs> you know, every time I flip the channel onto TBS or TNT and the movie's on, I'll watch 15, 20 minutes of it. So it, it sort of becomes reality after... A period of time, but um, you know that was a great time in the A's history. I mean, we had back-to-back hundred-win teams. We had all those players we've already talked about that, that fans still look to as kind of big parts of this organization. And, and the twenty-win streak was was sort of undescribable. I mean, going through something like that. It was my third year in the game. I mean, I was sitting with people in the clubhouse, both staff and and you know coaches this never happens you know you never get close to anything like this so it was it was a pretty amazing thing while it was going on um, and again we we felt like at the time we had a, another team that could have gone you know all the way and it just it didn't work out in the playoffs but um, yeah never did I imagine it would sort of be um, memorialized the way it was while we were going through we look we knew Michael was sticking around and paying close attention and taking a lot of notes, but yeah, who really knew what it was going to be? You had no idea Brad Pitt was going to enter the equation at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> I would not have bet on that at the time. <laughs> uh, so the A's were credited by most as the leaders in the analytics revolution among baseball teams. Do you think the Moneyball stigma still follows the franchise around today, or the fact that analytics have become so, you know, all 30 teams now have analytics departments, has sort of lessened that? Uh, you know, everybody is doing something. Um, you know, I do think there's still a little bit of a, a narrative out there that, um, you know, why aren't the A's better if they started this thing or whatever. I mean, 
Unfortunately, it's easy to ignore if you don't uh, if you turn your internet off for a little bit. But uh, the reality is, um, whether Moneyball sped up this sort of changes in the game or not, it was all coming, um, and and we now all have access to pretty much the same information. I mean, Statcast has been pretty remarkable in how it's revolutionized what everybody has, and now you just need to you know dissect it and apply it. Um, but you know, we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about that narrative that, that came from the book. Do you think StatCast has changed the way fans are looking at the game? That's a good question. Um, I think so. I think it's given them access to, you know, to a lot of new things. And whether they, they care about exit velocity or route efficiency or those things, it at least has provided them a, a new way to look at, at the game. And I, I think any options are great for fans. So every team at this point has an analytics department. Do you think teams are now out there looking for the next big thing? Yeah, without a doubt. I think I think there's always going to be sort of this rat race to figure out what what is the next advantage or, or what are we not thinking about and whether it's injury prevention or it's decision making or process. I mean, there's always going to be a, a quest to kind of find find that thing. So, um, but again, it really has kind of leveled the playing field certainly compared to where we were in 2002. So while while prepping for this interview and going through some stuff on the internet, I found that there is an autographed business card of yours on eBay for thirty nine ninety nine. Come on. Any thoughts? That can't possibly be real. That that is fake news. <laughs> <laughs> there were a number of GMs on there. I was I, I found it to be well. There's odd a, there's a reason it's still sitting there That's on right. eBay. <laughs> uh, after reaching the postseason for three straight seasons, the past two have been more difficult. One hundred eighty seven losses. How tough have these two years been on you? Well, it's it's different than what we're used to, to be honest. Um, 2015 was was hard because we really felt like we still had a team to compete. Um, you know, we knew after losing that wild card game in 2014 that we had to make a bunch of changes, but but we thought we we sort of retooled well, and then injuries just devastated that team. Zobrist, who was such a going to be such a key to that team, got hurt in April, and we never really recovered from that. Um, you know, last off season or, or before 2016, we. You know, we, we knew we were challenged, but we had made some moves, a couple trades. We, we brought in Chris Davis, who you know, actually worked out great. Um, but again, you know, sort of sabotaged by injury where, you know, Felix Dubron goes down literally the day before the season starts. Chris Bassett gets hurt. Sonny misses time in May. And we're just not, you know, we're not in a position where our margin for error is big enough to to sort of overcome those kinds of injuries. So it, they were tough. I think we, we were able to, to sort of switch gears uh, both years at the deadline, where in 15 we traded Zobris and Kaz and brought back, you know, Manai and Mengden in those deals, who were critical to what we're doing now. Um, we also got Jacob Nottingham, who we traded for Chris Davis last year. So uh, we were able to sort of see, you know, there has to be something good to come out of this. And, and last year at the deadline, the trade we made with the Dodgers, you know, Reddick and Hill going there to bring back Cotton, Montas, and Grant Holmes who is one of our biggest prospects now, but Cotton and Montes are going to be a huge part of our 2017 Major League Club. So the sort of silver lining was we were able to shift gears at the deadline both seasons and bring back important pieces going forward. You spent more than $30 million on four free agents this winter. It's not a $200 million contract, but it's significant <laughs> money yeah. for your payroll. Uh, Ted Garcia, Matt Joyce, Trevor Pluth, and, and Rajay Davis. How much better do you think they make you right now? Well, they do, they do a couple things. They certainly make us better in the short term. Um, you know, we, we had a big hole in center field. Raj can do that. Uh, Trevor's a veteran. He, he's played third base. He's hit for power. 
similarly in right field, you know, Joyce fills a spot that we did not have coming off a great year in Pittsburgh. So uh, they definitely make us better right now, which is not a small thing. I mean, we have a young core starting pitching that you can't just throw out there to the wolves. You have to put guys around to give them a chance to compete and develop in, in something of a winning environment. So those things are critical. They also allow us to develop players and not bring them up too soon. And, and you know, we've always said when guys get here, you want them to stay. You know, that's what's important. The, the guys we've already talked about, Tejada, Chavez, uh, Grieve was up at that time. And then those pitchers, when they got here, they didn't go back to the minor leagues. So you want to make sure guys are ready. And whether it's Franklin Barreto or Matt Chapman or Matt Olson or Jacob Rugman, whoever the prospect is, those guys sh should be ready to, to play from day one in the big leagues, if at all possible. Roger is a guy who has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. He's in the World Series last year, obviously a huge moment. Yeah. How much does it help bringing in a guy with that kind of experience into a young clubhouse who can teach them about yeah, Things no, like it, it's important, and even even more important, we know Raj. We had him here. We knew what kind of guy he was. We knew what kind of guy Casilla was. Adam Rosales was here. We knew what kind of people we were bringing into this club, um, and that is as important as anything, particularly when you have young players. You have to know... The, the guys that are established, that are around them, you have to know that they're learning the right things from those kind of guys. How important is it for Sonny Gray to return to his pre-2016 form? Yeah, that, that'd be huge. Um, you know, Sonny is, uh, it's hard to believe he's the veteran on this staff right now right. With, with three years. I mean, it feels like just yesterday he came up, you know, I think we brought him out of the bullpen in Pittsburgh for his major league debut, and he, like, shot onto the scene in the 2012 playoffs. But he is the veteran. He's sort of the guy that the rest of the staff looks to. And, you know, as big a jump forward as Kendall made and, and now sort of probably takes over the opening night start with, with Sonny out, I mean, Kendall's only been here a couple of years. They, those, I think that staff looks to Sonny to sort of set the tone, so it would be huge to get him back at some point early in the season. You mentioned Chris Davis earlier. Uh, he obviously showed great power last year, 42 home runs. What does he need to do to take the next step to become a more complete player and not just a beast who can hit the ball real far? Yeah, well, I'll take a beast who can hit the ball <laughs> real far right now. I mean... Uh, I know. Calls them big hairy <laughs> I know. Uh, I know. Chris has spent a lot of time working on defense this if, this uh, this spring, um, and actually he can really go get the ball in left field. Uh, obviously his throwing's been an issue, and he's working on that. Um, and I, I think he understands, you know, the parts of his offensive game other than just homers. Whether you know whether it's hitting for more average or taking some walks, cutting down on the strikeouts. I think those are all things he's aware of and is looking to improve. But. The reality is that hitting 40-plus homers covers up a lot of other issues, and, and we'll take it. What's Ryan Healy's upside as a player? Wow, it's hard to say. Um, you know, Ryan forced our hand last year and, and kind of shot his way to the big leagues before anybody thought he was going to be ready. Um, and he's continued to swing the bat great down here. Um, you know, this is a guy we're, we absolutely have to find 500 bats for and see what he can do. But, um, but he's got the kind of power to hit 30-plus homers and knows his swing, he, you know, he, he knows the strike zone, so it's going to be exciting to see what he can do in a full year. How do you feel about the state of your farm system overall right now? I think we're in a really good spot. As, as, you know, as good as we've been for a while, obviously that run in you know, 12, 13, 14, we traded off a lot of young players, and, and understandably so. When you have a window, you, you have to take advantage of it. I mean, if there's anything I've learned, it's that 
you know, all, every playoff appearance is precious. You never know when you're going to give back. So you have to do what it takes. And, and, you know, people look back at, you know, trading Addison Russell and say, like, how could you do that? He was, he's this great young player. Look, you know, we weren't going to get to the playoffs that year without more starting pitching and Samarja and Hamill. And we, we, you know, we had to take that opportunity. But I think since the day we made that Addison trade, we've sort of, you know, gone through the process of regenerating our minor leagues. And, and I've mentioned just a few names in Chapman and Barreto, um, but I feel really good. You know, Daniel Gossett's another young starting pitcher who we think will be here at some point this year. And um, our scouting department's done a great job in a short time of, of adding talent. What's your assessment of the state of the American League West right now? Man, it's tough. Um, yeah, it's, this has always been a tough division. And, and um, you know, Texas and Houston are not slowing down. I mean, Houston has a, a good young core. And you think about Altuve and Springer and Correa and all these guys being there for the long haul. It's, it's a tough chore to, to compete with them. But Rangers are going to be good. Seattle obviously has made a lot of trades to focus on winning now. Um, you know, and, and Anaheim always has the resources. And they just happen to have the best player in the game <laughs> sitting in center field. So you can never count them out. So it, it's a tough division. We've got our work cut out for us. David, appreciate your time. Good luck. Thanks very much, man.